This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Mark Rowan, founding partner of Apollo Management, one of the world's largest private equity investment firms, makes it sound simple. Stick to the fundamentals. That is, buy a good business at a low price, and you ultimately will see returns. Of course, identifying those businesses is the challenge. Rowan, who was in mergers and acquisitions at Drexel Burnham Lambert before starting Apollo, spoke with Knowledge at Wharton about how Apollo makes investment decisions, the challenges private equity faces in the coming months, the recent insider trading scandals, and what he looks for in new hires. Thank you for joining us today, Mark. The value of private company acquisitions fell by two-thirds this year to July. Things have come back some, of course, but there are still reports that private equity in general will likely face large losses over the year. And now, industry observers talk about the wall of refinancing coming in 2012 for firms scooped up by private equity companies just before the financial crisis hit. How do you see all of this playing out? It's certainly an interesting time for private equity, um, but I think it's important to come back to fundamentals. Um, anyone who's been investing for long periods of time knows the secret to success, and I'm sure the two of you know the secret to success, which is low price. If you buy a fundamentally good business at a low price, you will ultimately make money. And the irony is that we all know that as investors, particularly in private equity, and we have a capital base that's 10 or 12 years that allows us to pick our spots in time. But it is ironic that with all these industry professionals and all this capital structure in place, most money is not invested when prices are low. Most money is invested when prices are high. That's, after all, when there's confidence in the economy, when there's financing, when, quite frankly, businesses want to be sold. The challenge, I think, for private equity and investors generally is to have the courage of their convictions and to come up with strategies for investing when prices are low and liquidity is not available. For us at Apollo, the strategy that we have relied on for the past 20 years is distressed. Most of the founders of our business come out of the debt business. And rather than looking for acquisitions in the traditional private equity fashion during these sorts of periods of time, what we do is we employ our fixed income skill set. We go in and we buy the debt, bank debt, subordinated debt, of fundamentally good businesses that are overlevered, and we work through a process with creditors, sometimes in bankruptcy, sometimes out of bankruptcy, and we end up hopefully backing into control of a fundamentally good capital structure at a good price. This has proved to be a very good thing for us. And if you look over the past 20 years, the fund that we raised in 1990, the foundation of the RTC, the last SNL crisis, better than 50% rates of return, The fund that was raised in 2001 in the wake of 9-11 and the Internet and telecom debacle, better than 60% rates of return. And across our firm over the past 18 months, we have actually invested almost $9 billion of equity, not universally popular with many LPs who were, in fact, you know, scared by the volatility in the market, but we fundamentally believe the right thing to do. In terms of the other parts of your question, Um, Clearly, this will be a difficult period of time for private equity. Many companies were acquired in 2006, 2007 when the sun was shining on the economy and liquidity was plentiful, and there no doubt will be casualties. Uh, Companies will go bankrupt. Private equity will suffer losses. But I think, again, to put it in perspective, even for someone like us, we have never had a fund where we have not lost money 
on at least one company. We are, after all, in a risk business. There is no free lunch. Uh, and if we are seeking better than 20% rates of return, no doubt there will be some volatility. Um, in terms of wholesale collapse, wholesale panic, refinancing, I believe that to be significantly overstated. Yes, we have this wall of refinancings as an industry, but if you look at what's happened over the past 12 months, the wall that was there in 2012 and 2013 is now 2014 and 2015. The supply of bank debt is shrinking. The supply of bonds is increasing. At the end of the day, fundamentally good companies will find windows in the capital markets to refinance, and I don't believe there will be wholesale liquidations or losses. Where do you see the best opportunities today in private equity, first in the U.S. and then outside the U.S. in places like India, China, et cetera? Um, our purview is really limited to the U.S. and Western Europe uh, for making de novo investments. Uh, clearly, we are aware of the macro factors taking place in India and China, but we have to really look ourselves in the mirror and say, what is it that we're bringing? Uh, it's not as if we have the, the, the best local knowledge, and it's not as if China needs more dollars coming there. So you have a highly liquid economy with lots of local players. Uh, we think it's best to pick our spots where uh, we think we have a knowledge-based edge. Um, in the U.S. and Western Europe, if I look at what we've done over the past 18 months, I would say 90% of what we've done has been debt. Initially, when the economy went through a liquidity crisis, we saw a period of time when banks' balance sheets were bloated with corporate loans that they could not syndicate. For a period of time in the fall of last year, we saw wholesale liquidations of senior secured debt of fundamentally good companies being sold at prices and in structures that implied private equity rates of return over long periods of time with senior secured debt risk. In my 25-year career, I'd never seen that before, and that was clearly, at that point in time, the best risk reward. That phase largely ended at the beginning of 2009 as banks cleared out their back inventory and markets began to recover, and most of the rest of 2009 was spent buying distressed positions in fundamentally good companies that have then resulted in good equity investments. The two largest examples in our portfolio are Charter Communications, the third largest cable company in the U.S., uh, and Lyondell Chemical, which is just now going through a corporate reorganization, examples of two very good businesses. Um, if I were to look industry by industry, um, I think you know the partners in my firm would certainly have a variety of opinions depending on their background and expertise. Clearly, industry is not necessarily the divining rod for opportunity. I think right now we are most focused on situations where liquidity, where patient capital, where risk capital, quite frankly, can make the difference and result in attractive asset purchase prices. If I look at our activity, a lot of it has been in financial services. Uh, financial services was among the places that were hardest hit by the recent liquidity crisis and in commodities where we've seen a tremendous amount of volatility and players have not had sustainable capital structure. Are there any areas or industries you would stay away from? I know you said that you don't pick industry by industry because it really depends on the situation, but are there warning flags that, that you look for? Uh, and conversely, what are the industries that you have invested in recently? Um, it, it's hard for us, again, to pick industry by industry. The way we have set up our firm is we have grown organically a 60-person partnership. Uh, the three founders have been together 25 years, and most of the other partners have been together close to 20 years. 
and each of us has our own specialty. Today, those specialties encompass nine industries. And quite simply, if we think we have a knowledge-based advantage, we're active. If we don't think we have a knowledge-based advantage, even if we see a good deal, it's not really for us. The sectors that we cover most actively are chemicals, metals, distribution and transportation, packaging, media and leisure, satellite, and business and financial services. There are clearly some gaping holes in there. Uh, we've seen healthcare be very interesting, but again, not for us. We've seen technology be very interesting. Again, not for us. I think you will see firms stick to their knitting in very volatile times. Where's your money coming from these days? Are you finding the same sources you found three to four years ago, and are the conditions different? Um, the money is coming directly or indirectly from both of you. Um, I, you know, private equity has its uh, glamorous moments. Certainly, uh, there's no shortage of stories and headlines written about some of the leading players. But sometimes I describe my job, particularly to my children. I am a fiduciary money manager on behalf of retirees around the world. At, at its core, if you sub-analyze our, our base, we are supporting retirees, uh, teachers, public employees, corporate pensioners. We are, for our international clients mostly, working for sovereign wealth funds, which typically represent the long-term future of a nation. And we are look, working for government-affiliated entities uh, in Asia and the rest of the world. Most of these investors um, have been around in this business as investors for a very long period of time. Clearly, we have had a lot of investor angst over the past 12 months and 18 months regarding private equity and returns. It's an interesting period of time, though. Mostly, as I've said, we have seen the best returns following chaos. That's certainly been true for us, but it's also been true for the industry as a whole. I'm not sure exactly why uh, limited partner investors at this point in time have been so vocal in their criticisms of private equity. Private equity as a whole, yet last year, was down. Levered equities were down, quite frankly. Unlevered equities in the S&P were down. At the end of the day, what we try and do is to fit in a niche in a CIO or CFO's corporate portfolio as they try to match their assets and liabilities. It's not all that glamorous described that way, but many of our clients have an 8% cost of capital. Today, the bond market's not providing them 8%. The stock market's not providing them 8%. Corporate bond market's not providing them 8%. They're very wary of going back into real estate given that the problems have not worked through. So if you're a CIO today, what is it you're investing in? Eventually, alternatives or alternatives in different structures will have to play a large, port, a large part of their investment portfolios, or they will not be able to meet their selected discount rates. Revisions of selected discount rates are not politically popular. Moving a discount rate from 8% to 4% roughly doubles the liability in a 50-, 60-year plan. Mark, given all the recent publicity over Galleon, what's the line between being a very successful hedge fund and being an insider trading ring? You know, I, I, I'm not really sure that there, there is a line. I think they're just so different. Um, people who know that they possess confidential information and trade on that confidential information have stolen something. Uh, it doesn't need this environment to tell them that. Uh, this has been true uh, for 20, 30, 40 years uh, as insider trading law and insider trading cases have developed. There are many successful hedge funds. There are many smart people. I, I'm just not sure that it's even worth the comparison. Uh, 
there are people who step over the line and people who don't step over the line. There were stories in the newspaper just this morning about the arrest of 14 people on insider trading charges, even beyond those at, at Galleon. Do you think the public perception is that insider trading is just unbelievably widespread, much more so than is reported, and that hedge funds and others will do just about anything to get that edge? Um, th- clearly, public perception is an issue. Uh, I, I tell this funny story sometimes. My, my wife and I are heading to a, a, a dinner event, and we pull up at this dinner event, and there are protesters as far as the eye can see, and they're carrying placards, and my wife is wearing fur. And she goes, oh, no, not fur again. I said, don't worry, honey. They're here protesting hedge funds and private equity. <laughs> uh, and the reality is private equity and hedge funds have seeped into the public consciousness, and not in a very good way. Just think about this year. Think that this year ended after everything that occurred with Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff was a pillar of the financial community. This was an insider. This was someone who was part of the the establishment, had been reviewed by the SEC. The fact that we've now had uh, Madoff and uh, mini Madoffs and uh, Stanford's and others uh, has been tremendously undermining uh, for public confidence and hedge funds. But I really don't think it stops at hedge funds. Uh, it, It goes to banks. It goes to investment banks. Public anger at financial firms generally who are perceived to either have created the crisis or have been bailed out inappropriately in the crisis or to have preyed on the unwary or have been unscrupulous, the stories are legion. Uh, Today's arrest of 14 or the expansion of the Galleon probe uh, is just a symptom of the times. Uh, There are bad people in every industry. There are bad politicians, there are bad corporate leaders, and there are certainly bad people who run hedge funds. Uh, This seems to have been their year, though. Uh, Paolo has long been an investor in debt and equities, but now you've announced that you'll start a commodities hedge fund in copper, gold, and mining stocks at the worst collapse in commodity prices in 50 years. Now, I know you've mentioned that after catastrophe is the time to get involved. Um, Could you explain the opportunity that you see there? Sure. Uh, it's always interesting how these how businesses grow. Um, I look at our business, and we we have a little bit of an interesting history. Um, we three the three founders all worked together at Drexel Burnham some twenty five years ago, and in the ashes of Drexel, um, we ended up partnering with a uh, government owned bank, uh, the State Bank of France, the Credit Lyonnais Bank, who put us in business as a, their lar- as what was at the time their largest investment. By the mid-90s, they had $6 billion invested with Apollo, and we had earned them roughly 50% a year. And we presented them an unorthodox fund. Out of one fund, we bought equities for control, private equity. We bought debt for control, our distress business. We bought debt for yield and spread, our high-yield and mezzanine business. We bought real estate both for control and for spread, <coughs> our real estate lending business. All of these businesses following the demise of Credit Lyonnais were then broken into private partnerships uh, with distinct management teams and distinct capital bases because that is how traditional institutions invest versus the government of France. But the core that we created, the belief that we created almost by accident, was no Chinese wall. The thing that we have really done well as a firm is run the firm without any information blockages. The way we think about our business is that we have a library of information. That library today is very prevalent across eight or nine different industries. In those eight or nine different industries, we have partners who've worked 15 or 20 years. We've owned multiple companies, multiple CEOs. We get a tremendous amount of industry information. 
So one of the sectors that I've mentioned that we are very active in is in the metals business. We own aluminum plants. We own metals distribution companies. We own metals resources companies. We therefore possess not market-based metal information, but unique on-the-ground customer flow, spot information about what is happening in various markets. Sometimes we monetize that information by making equity investments for control, private equity. Sometimes we use our knowledge of that business to make good debt investments. That's the core of our lending business. And sometimes what we do is we blend the two. We see both a trading opportunity uh, as well as an opportunity to run a business uh, that can provide differentiated returns for investors like a metals hedge fund. And so what we are doing is we're simply leveraging the information that already exists within our firm and expressing it not as a private equity fund or not as a mezzanine fund or as a debt fund, but as a commodities trading fund. And you will see us not just grow a commodities trading fund, you will see us build a commodities private equity business around the same capability. And that includes forays into agriculture and energy? Um, our, and we've announced our first deal in energy, which is a, the acquisition of Parallel Petroleum, uh, which is a uh, U.S.-based oil and gas producer, very complicated capital structure, had been somewhat overlevered, was facing a bit of a debt crisis. We combined the skills that we have as distressed and capital structure investors with our knowledge of the commodities markets and ended up, in our view, buying oil at roughly $20 a barrel out of the ground and hedging it forward such that we have an acceptable and nice return if oil stays at current levels. And we have a terrific return if, if inflation uh, takes the price of oil up or if the price of oil goes up on its own. I like that risk-reward in this environment where we're not necessarily betting on the recovery of the, commodity, of the economy or of the U.S. consumer. Uh, we're simply betting that there will at some point be inflation, uh, which is something uh, I think is, is an interesting bet. According to news, other news reports today, big bonuses are back for many people on Wall Street, but not for everyone. Uh, for example, incentive pay is projected to rise by about 40% for businesses like, like fixed income and equities, but will drop 15 to 30% at hedge funds and private equity funds, among others. Do you agree with that prediction, and how does that affect your hiring and retention? I do think that is the likely outcome this year. Um, if you think about what's happened, you have had the demise of a number of competitors uh, in the trading business. You've seen Merrill Lynch disappear into B of A. You've seen Bear Stearns disappear uh, into uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, you've seen Lehman Brothers disappear into Barclay. There simply is less competition. And what you're seeing is you're seeing the fattest trading spreads that have existed for a long period of time. I was reading uh, Goldman Sachs' recent earnings announcement, Morgan Stanley's earnings announcement, Credit Suisse's earnings announcement. Everyone seems to be enjoying robust trading profits. And since many of the fixed income traders, equity traders, proprietary investors receive a percentage of the ops within these institutions, I would expect them to do very well. Um, within the private equity business, we also are paid uh, primarily on incentives. We receive a share of the profits. Our share of the profits, though, comes not when investments are made, but when investments are sold. This has not been a great year in which to realize investments. Some realizations have occurred, but in the based on uh, to this year versus history, I would expect realizations and therefore payouts to be down. That is the nature of our business and appropriate. Um, the hedge fund business uh, has a little bit different business model. Many of the best hedge funds were down sizably last year. To be down 20 or 30 percent was not uncommon. Those hedge funds, therefore, need to be up 40, 50, and 60 percent this year just to break even. 
they operate in some ways the same way as a private equity firm as a percentage of the profits, although they are measured on a year-over-year basis based on a high watermark. Many firms, despite having good performance this year, will not have met their high watermark or will just have met their high watermark, so I would not expect substantial compensation uh, within the hedge fund industry, although there clearly will be exceptions that will be picked up in the newspaper. Uh, when you hire people into your firm, what do you look for in job applicants, professional level? You know, it, it's always difficult to know. So I, I always turn back to my personal experience. Uh, I left Wharton in 1984 1985, and I went to Drexel Burnham. One of the things I did at Drexel was run the recruiting practice. And so I ended up hiring mostly Wharton grads, both undergrads and grads. And when I got to Apollo, guess what? I ended up hiring mostly Wharton grads and undergrads. Uh, that was certainly an interesting way to start. And we have not been disappointed, and roughly 40 50% of our firm today is still Wharton alumni in one way or another. What we have discovered is there are lots of people who are smart enough to do the job. The question is, do they have the desire, and will they fit? Desire is easy for a year or two. Desire over a decade or two decades is much more difficult. Someone has to really have a passion for what they're doing, to give it all every day for a decade. And if I look at the culture that we've tried to build, we have, uh, of the big firms, uh, the fewest number of people. That is not because we are incapable of hiring. It is because we believe that we are better off having 55 or 60 really long-tenured, really smart partners, and we have avoided the 100 associates who otherwise would be running around. Now, that has cost us in that we are clearly not staffed to cover every industry in every situation. At the same time, though, in the industries in which we are expert, we have a partner who's generally been doing the same thing for 15 or 20 years. So if they're the partner in the satellite business, they've lived the satellite business for 15 to 20 years. They know all of the CEOs. They know all of the trends. We don't have to relearn the business. They know what there is to do. It's just how we've gone about our business. Fit, again, is something that is very important. When you have as many long-tenured partners as we have, and we've had de minimis turnover, one of the things we've been able to do is to create a culture where you can openly disagree and vocally disagree and then go out to lunch. And so new arrivals come to Apollo, and they go to their first investment meeting, and they are almost shocked to see the three leaders of the firm yelling at each other in front of each other. There is no investment committee. There is no back room where the senior partners get together and decide what they're going to do. Our belief has always been the way you learn this business is through experience. And the way you get experience is you see why we make the decisions we make, what the issues are, and you watch us fight it out. Somehow it has worked for us. I'm not sure it would work for everyone. So when you hire someone, you're envisioning smarts, desire, but also, are they going to be completely in shock when they see that we run a, as participatory a culture as we do, particularly the first time they stand up and have something truly unique or controversial to say? Well, Mark, thanks very much for joining us, and good luck to you. Good. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.